Surgeon General warning. Schreeder and I both got COVID in the past two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> like almost a day apart. So if yeah. you haven't figured it out yet, Schreeder and I don't live together or in the same city. Although a lot of people thought that in the first like yeah. few episodes of the podcast, right? When we were on full-on lockdown and stuff, everyone assumed, oh, you guys just live together and record the podcast. It's an understandable misunderstanding. <laughs> but yeah, no, we do live a few time zones apart. Schreeder is in the Midwest and I... I'm not. (laughs) No, I mean, I think part of the joy of this podcast too, right? It's part of it is you and I like catching up sometimes. If we live together, when we turn the mic on, it'd be a lot more organized. Maybe we like have like a very clear like thing we specifically want to talk about. But it's true. It's true. If we live together, we would have to do one of those podcasts that has like an episode topic that they, you know, that they do deep dives into and it's scripted and they have music underneath and all that stuff, you know. Because our chatting would be done at the dinner table, right? But yeah. as a word, this is our catch-up time. So you get to hear us chatting every few weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're those two annoying friends you never wish you had. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of that Victor Borga joke he always said. I'm going to play for you two pieces, one of which is List Hungarian Rhapsody, and the other one isn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I do love me some Victor Borga, brilliant pianist, human, person, comedian, performer, all the above. I'm not sure if it's still on YouTube, but there was a documentary on YouTube of him. It's really it's really worth watching. Uh, if it's still there, we'll put it in the show notes. If it's not, we'll find some other way to link it in the show notes. And I think it's called The Funniest Man on Earth or something. It's a, it's a documentary about Victor Borga, who's a Danish pianist slash comedian, and, you know, he was hilarious. His yeah. performance at the White House, I forget, uh, I think Eisenhower was in office then, mm. but his performance in their ballroom with their big, um, there's like a famous Steinway they have at the White House that was the only one ever made. It's not like fundamentally different tonally or like from an instrument perspective, but like from from a decorative perspective, it looks almost like the the desk in the Oval Office, right? Has It's very ornate. Yeah, that performance he gives at the White House, that's really hilarious. And um, oh yeah, that, I mean, there's just so many Victor Borga moments things like that one um encore he gives with the violinist where they play Shardis, the oh, yeah. Hungarian song where he didn't really know the piece that well and just had to improvise along uh it's hilarious <laughs> Anyways, no, if people aren't familiar with Victor Borga, I always thought of him as the Louis Armstrong of piano, right? Hmm. Like seeing him was more than just seeing a pianist or seeing a performance or seeing a trumpet player or seeing a trumpet performance. No, seeing him was like, it was a show itself. Like performance was what you went for. I can't put my finger on it. Maybe you can help me. You're always better with words. <laughs> not not always, but I think in in sort of classical and jazz music worlds, there are a lot of musicians who you know, rightfully treat the music as sort of art and the performance is something, it's just a medium that needs to be done for you to transmit the art, right? But, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the majority of artists sort of in these fields, they can be brilliant performers, but they almost deal with the performance as a thing that needs to be gotten through. But every once in a while, you get a certain kind of person who brings a sort of more popular music mentality to it where they're really or not even not not even popular music but it's just the kind of mentality that you see with like stand-up comedians or yeah mm-hmm. like some pop musicians where it's like okay i'm out here i'm on a stage this is a show yeah the purpose, the purpose of this is to entertain it's not it's not self-directed you know i think of someone like vladimir horowitz you know he's a generational talent and a brilliant pianist but he would just sort of walk on stage and basically pretend like the audience didn't exist. You know, there are recordings of him on YouTube where he would just sit down and start playing even before the audience is done clapping, right? This is a level of disregard that he had for his, <laughs> <laughs> for his, uh, for his yeah. crowd. 
No. And I mean, that's also respectable. Yeah, that, that's all. Yeah, that's that's totally fine. But it's just yeah. it's a different breed, right? Like there's a right. kind of different person who can sort of work the crowd the way that Sinatra could. Right. And that's yeah. pretty rare. It's more common in the jazz world. It's super rare in the classical world. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. Barely right. ever happens. <laughs> right. Almost like a concert without a concert program. Right. You're buying a ticket to a great evening. Right. right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. That's, that's well and, said. Yeah. But no. So I mean, this. Almost, I mean, not as like as a compliment, but just as an interesting observation. I think you, more than most, might actually understand what I'm talking about, <laughs> which is it's almost clear that Victor Borga didn't speak English as a first language, hmm. right? Like the way he constructs a joke. I mean, like the thing I just said, you know, I'm going to play two pieces, one of which is Franz Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody. The other one isn't, right? That's not something I think a native English speaker would think of so quickly that's a pretty funky construction we have that is like still allowed or fluent or whatever right him being an immigrant to this nation stuff also led to who he was as a performer entertainer comedian musician and such that i think made him the rare gem he was in addition to his talent and skills and all that stuff too yeah yeah he had a facility with language that i think only comes with knowing multiple languages or at least being okay. familiar with multiple languages right he's also danish which helps yeah. you know it, it you know yeah. th- th- there are certain people who who know english better than than americans for sure right, uh, but, right, but right. you know uh, <laughs> dutch danish yeah yeah, all yeah. Them. yeah. <laughs> my personal favorite video of him though there's so many good ones like you said is a video where he's playing with the recorder player uh <laughs> yeah. petri who's who's a wonderful recorder player and uh, wait wait hold time out Wonderful, and then recorder player usually don't go in a sentence together. <laughs> they, they usually don't, but Petri is, is a bona fide genius. So, um, you know, there are very few of them, but she is she's undoubtedly one of them. And uh, he makes her break so many times in the in the little performance that they do together. She's just cracking up. And, yeah, obviously you can't play when you're cracking up uh, on a wind instrument. So, uh, <laughs> As you and I know, oh, too well. Like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can't so. sneeze, can't laugh, can't smile, can't. There's a lot of things. <laughs> right. <laughs> that so, violinists uh, don't know how good they have it. Yeah. No, uh, dude, we forgot. I mean, the arguably greatest video on YouTube is the Victor Borga Happy Birthdays compilation. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah Ray plays Happy Birthday in the style of different composers. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, like, too good. It is too good. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's, like, now kind of a cliche bit, but I, I will say he got there He got there early. Yeah. But, yeah, um, go, go check the show notes, people. We'll, we'll put some classic Victor Borga bits in there, yeah. and you can go check them out. there's something to you know the art of improvisation right everyone thinks improvisation just being a jazz thing but as as we've talked about before you know at one point all of western music was improvised right yeah only because we couldn't catch music happening with recording technology right we had to write it down so gradually improvisation found its way out of western music and then it was only with the advent of like recording technology that jazz happened to come along and 
that improvisation was back in vogue again for historical reasons it emerged where it did in new orleans when with blues tonalities and stuff but the improvisation part of jazz which is in many ways the core of jazz it's a revitalization of of a process that had been in vogue you know for hundreds of years up until 1700s or so and sorry that was just like a little spiel on improv but it's one with the human experience streeter because we improv throughout life you know I mean, we, we're certainly improving through this podcast recording, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, so everyone, this is like, we've been kicked out of two Zooms and a Google Meet, and now we're back in a Zoom. And so, okay, so I was reading this. I was Googling this as I, as I was waiting for you to hop back on the call. So Zoom streets here used to allow two participants to stay in a meeting for up to 24 hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's May, good for even us. <laughs> but in May 2022... The company announced it would now be limited to 40 minutes. That's the same restriction that had always applied for anywhere between three and 100 participants. You know what, Zoom? Go fuck yourself. God damn it. (laughs) The way companies do this, like how companies choose to intentionally piss off their users is just like... So a great example of a company that doesn't do this is Netflix, at least so far, right? They've come under a lot of pressure to cut back on people like sharing passwords, but they refuse to do it even though they're potentially losing, you know, all this money on the table because everyone's sharing accounts. But, you know, the way they look at it, the reason back in the early days of Netflix streaming, right, is they actually encouraged people to share passwords mm-hmm. because they realized the game they were playing. They realized before anyone else in the, in, in the industry that the game they were playing was trying to maximize eyeballs on their content. That sounds obvious now, but back in 2010, when they were starting streaming, you know, this was not obvious. And sure enough, they were able to then use that as a bargaining chip in Hollywood when they were trying to bid for content to be on their platform and stuff. They could say, this is how many users view our content or this kind of content every month or every day, right? So they were able to get good rates on content they could put on streaming, which would make more people want to pay for Netflix and share passwords, and that cycle will would fuel itself, but it's so frustrating the way that the companies do this. And you know, for that matter, we'll put a pin in this here, and we'll come back to it if if it doesn't end up being the case. But I would not be surprised if Netflix caves on the password sharing within the next year or so because of their sort of tanking. Uh, <laughs> their stock is down. Yeah, their stock is down. <laughs> their, their numbers are down, and I, I've also seen that they are now going to not really prioritize, and in fact, not just prioritize, but I think they're going to just stop greenlighting enormous projects by huge artists now. And and they specifically hmm. cited The Irishman by, oh, by, really? by, by Marty Scorsese. Yeah, because it's an exaggeration to say that he bankrupted them. But uh, it was what it was <laughs> it's a worth, good movie. It was it's a fantastic uh, yeah, movie. But it's uh, it was worth a lot of money. And I think, yeah. you know, I, I think th- there was an old media model that was kind of like, we'll do a lot of small scale kind of stupid things that will get a lot of eyeballs mm-hmm. in order to fund big projects by great artists that uh, are probably not going to be ROI positive. But it's still our duty to do that because that's that's, that's what's going to, you know, it's like two things. Like one of them is going to keep us afloat and the other one is going to sort of improve our cultural cachet, right? So something like the Irishman may not make money because it's so expensive to make, but it's going to to, to have Scorsese's sort of major film streaming on Netflix and, and, and in yeah. fact, you know, premiering there. That's the kind of cultural cachet that you can't buy, right? Because Scorsese is such a yeah. cultural icon. I think that's the kind of old media model. And I, I, I'm kind of disappointed mm-hmm. to see that I think newer media companies are ditching that for just pure eyeballs because it doesn't really matter anymore what, what your cultural cachet is as long as you can get sort of eyeballs on screens because you know all you need to do is sort of sell sell to the advertisers so and and I saw that, that Netflix announced recently that they're just not going to do projects like that anymore which is a shame that's the only way that these projects get made right I mean I, mean, I, I think of an analogy to the record industry where um, I think of someone like James Galway where you know he would do a CD of like music by uh, just like sort of pops music, right? Like like the Pink Panther and- uh, Aladdin for flute. Yeah, yeah, or yeah, like yeah, or yeah. Can You Feel the Love? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, stuff like that. And people would always say like, why are you doing that? You're James Galway. You're the ex-principal flute of the Berlin Philharmonic and you're, you're like the most famous flute player in the world. Why are you doing this? And the reason is because he does that CD of like Disney tunes and that makes RCA millions of dollars. And then the next CD that he puts out can be a sort of, it can, it's like a CD of Debian concertos, right? Hmm, uh, yeah. It's because that one is not going to make him, it's not going to make the record company any money. But now that CD gets to exist, and that CD would have never existed in a, a, a world in which no one 
prioritizes vanity projects, right? Yeah. Just to clarify, you're saying, yeah, James Galloway, or I see Yo-Yo Ma doing this too, right? He, exactly, same thing. A CD of like movie themes, right, for Capitol Records, but then he says, all right, yeah, I'll do this, but I'll only do this if next I get to do, you know, obscure bohemian cello tunes that are fantastic and great, but are never recorded. Right, right exactly, so, yeah. Or, yeah. Or like contemporary music, which does, yeah. on the whole, it's doing better now, but contemporary music on the whole does abysmally. Right, right. You know, uh, on the charts. Mm, because right, people like right. to listen to what they know. So a new CD of Tchaikovsky 5 is always going to destroy a new CD of composers that are that have never had pieces recorded before. Uh, obviously, right. that's just how things work. But right. So, yeah, also, it's just a shame. Also, senses uh, yeah. I, I never thought I'd hear, a new CD of Tchaikovsky 5 will destroy. <laughs> <laughs> Fill in the blank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm getting um, ready for our YouTube channel, so, you know, we can... Yeah. <laughs> Or TikTok, man. You're talking about micro content. Oh, right? God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, yeah. <laughs> Impolite to listen to TikTok is going to get lit, <laughs> the kids say, yeah. as the TikTokers say. It's funny. You were saying this old media model of, you know, pay money to make money, mm-hmm. essentially, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like how you're calling it an old model. Yeah, it's like from 11 years ago. Yeah, I was going to say it's like 20 <laughs> years old. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, a lot of people in the industry, in the industry, in quotes, they called it the house of cards strategy. That all the streamers then followed. But Netflix, they paid like an obscene amount of money for the first season of House of Cards just for like the the rights to the script. It was like tens of millions of dollars and they spent over a hundred million dollars on the production of the first season. And again, this was the first. No one had done this in the streaming space before. This was like the first, you know, oh, let's get Netflix to watch blank, right? And then everyone followed suit. I guess HBO started that kind of in the late 90s, you know, get HBO to watch The Sopranos. But that was kind of different. It was like a cable option. It wasn't like a streaming service quite yet. Yeah. But um, but anyways, but it's funny that Netflix is the one that's, they're they're the ones struggling with the strategy that was so successful for them for, for a while. And they arguably invented, but... um. They benefited from being the only people. Now everyone's doing it, and and that model only works if if there are a few people doing it. Really, Discovery has a streaming. Channel. See, it's too much, too much. Ice now. Road Truckers, man, that's what. I'm you know, listeners, I will say, get rid of everything, stick with Criterion. The Criterion channel is all you need. You know, I've considered getting it actually. It's it's more worth your money than any other streaming channel, and you know, forego the hip TV shows. When your friend says, uh, hey, have you seen X, Y, or Z TV show that everyone's watching? Just say no. Just say, I have no intention of watching it. Unless it's really, really generational, then you can torrent it. But... Implytolisten.com uh, slash... Yeah. <laughs> we'll put torrent links on our website. <laughs> yeah. No, I was, was going to say we'll host it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, perfect. Even better. Yeah, yeah. We'll start running like a Pirate Bay proxy site. <laughs> Implytolisten.se. Yeah, yeah. No, perfect. <laughs> Concert attire. I have a concert coming up. You have concerts coming up. You play a lot. You gig a lot. It's always been in the back of my head. This whole concert attire thing we do. Should we do it? Should we not do it? Should it change? How has it changed? It's interesting, first of all, to see those slight variations maybe that have popped up over the past 10 years for professional orchestras in the concert attire. Two examples off the top of my head. The Baltimore Symphony. I'm not sure if they still do it, but it was like five years ago or so. They worked with like one of the one of like the European fashion houses to design better concert clothes. So for the men at least, it was like a tux, but instead of like a bow tie, it almost looked like a white sort of scarf, almost like a shawl collar hmm. that was like part of the dress shirt. The whole idea was to elim- to eliminate like the neck tie sort of thing, which as a wind player, yeah, it's you know, it's not not noticeable. I don't know. Maybe yeah. if you you're playing you know a few concerts a week for 10 years you get used to it but i'm still not used to it okay so fair enough right i, I don't i don't play like that much you know i, I don't play full-time in a professional orchestra but, yeah but, but i, I still you play a lot to, yeah yeah i play a lot and i still yeah. haven't gotten used to wearing t- anything like a tie or a bow tie and still being as free as i would like to be you know i can still play it it's not it's not like i suddenly put on a tie and i suck <laughs> Right, right. But I don't feel as free as I would like to, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, the the Baltimore Symphony was experimenting with changing up formal concert attire. The LA Philharmonic, if you notice, a lot of the performances, they perform in all black. And so I used to be of the mindset that 
I was against like the formal concert clothes. You know, we should be inviting people into the concert hall. It shouldn't be this white tie attired with you know waistcoat, bow tie, the jacket with the tail, all this stuff. It used to be um, against that because it was you know, scaring the casual listener away from the concert hall because it seems intimidating, maybe. But I've almost even flipped. I don't know if like the years of COVID have like caught up with <laughs> me, but the times I've been to the symphony or the ballet recently. I don't know. I kind of like it more now than ever where it's it double downs on the idea that the concert and like the music almost the way like a theater works should be a temporary removal from like your everyday life and like the hustle and bustle of society. This is an event and a happening that's not natural. Right. And should be stopped and and be enjoyed and appreciated and, and should be great. Right. And so I feel like the formal concert attire kind of lends itself to that. And I, I don't know. I, I Basically, I don't know what I think about this anymore. <laughs> so that's why I'm asking you. <laughs> I 100% agree. And I have not changed my mind on this. I've been thinking this for a while. So, and, and there's two elements yeah. here. There's one which is uh, what does the audience wear and one which is mm-hmm. what do the performers wear. Yeah. On the whole, sorry, Americans are pretty sloppy in the way they dress. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. You do have an American passport. Now. I do, I do, I do. Do I need to remind you of this, reader? I think, know, I think every once in a while you do. No, I, I think on the whole, you know, people dress pretty sloppily in America, mm-hmm. and maybe in the world they do as well. They're they're dressing more and more that way. And there's something to be said for a concert, or for that matter, like a museum exhibit, or or even a dinner party, right? Yeah, yeah. Or just you know a restaurant, yeah, a gala. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah. You know, this is a time for you to. Be at your best. Be at your yeah. most charming. Be at your most presentable, and, and look nice. You know, not only for for others, but for yourself. And there's something to that, and there's something worth preserving there. But I don't think that we should be dogmatic about it. So I don't think we need to say, uh, you know, this is what you need to wear to the opera, right? You know, th- this mm-hmm. is the dress code, as it were. <laughs> I think we can say, you know, because you know, you can look perfectly nice wearing uh, a button-up and dark jeans, say, and and some trainers. Mm-hmm. You know, like that that mm-hmm. that could be perfectly, you know. It, just don't be a slob, you know, as a performer, I want to look out into the audience and I want to see people dressed up for a night out, right? I, if I, It would be quite frankly demoralizing for me to sort of get on stage and I'm giving a recital. I would not really feel like I want to do the best that I could if I just saw a bunch of people with grease-stained uh, sweaters and, and sweatpants. I would just think, you know, what am I doing here? Why do I care? Are, are we really going to try to commune with Bach? here yeah. <laughs> you, like when you clearly just like come out of a mcdonald's yeah a, a we work <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like um so that's on that side but on the performer side yeah i think there's a lot of interesting things that we can do there because i think with the audience it would be nice if they dressed up but we can't expect anything of them we're professionals we're at work yeah. at that same time i don't think that we need to be dogmatic here too like i don't think like i think something like tails is a bit ridiculous mm-hmm. if you want to wear tails as a concerto soloist or a conductor that's okay, fine yeah. but i think requiring tails of everyone in the concert everyone in the orchestra is is a bit crazy yeah. because there's such a faff to, to put on there's such a faff to to wear it's borne out in the fact that most orchestras are really not requiring it anymore. Like, it's something that's actually yeah. now, it's, it's pretty European. It's kind of recent, too, actually. Yeah, yeah. In the U.S. I mean, I think still the San Francisco Symphony has tails as a requirement. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's called white tie attire, Yes, right? yeah. It's with tail. Okay, it's right, yeah. I was looking up the tradition of white tie attire. It comes from Viennese balls, mm-hmm. like the Habsburg Empire and stuff. And Which yeah, is why I think the last people to give it up will be the sort of Berlin-Vienna crowd. <laughs> I think Vienna. I don't think... <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the last to give up a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true, yeah. Yeah, the all-male orchestra. Requ- yeah, yeah, that small requirement <laughs> to play in the Vienna Philharmonic that requires you to have an X and Y chromosome. <laughs> yeah. For those who are not up to speed, because things move fast in this industry, <laughs> um, even for Vienna. Yeah, up until recently, yeah, I want to say it was 15, maybe it was 20 years ago or so. But yeah, they had never had a female member of the orchestra. I, I don't exactly remember when it was, but it was more recent than anyone listening would bet. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway. to go back to the to the thing, I, I mean, something like tails is, is a bit yeah. unnecessary. It's so formal that it doesn't even register as formal for the large percentage of at least American public, mm-hmm. you know? It's like a costume almost. Yeah, right. right. It's almost a parody. Yeah. A like it goes so far around the circle that it's yeah, yeah. captive so, on trap. Yeah. So now I think like just, just wear a suit. Wear a nice suit. Wear a suit yeah. You know, if we want bow ties, we can do that. If we want ties, we can do that. I personally think the be- ideal would be no tie, but you know, within that, now we have 
so many interesting things depending on whether you want to do like your evening sort of weekend concerts. You can say suit and a tie and like all black or something, you know, like yeah. a conservative tie. That's often what's required of, of me here. You okay. Know, they, they call it a conservative tie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. What kind of tie do you wear with that then? I just have a dark blue tie that's barely, it, it's the kind of tie that you don't even register that someone's wearing a tie, right? It's just, I see. It is, it's yeah, a very it's conservative tie. Yeah. The political debate tie. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Super boring. And I think that's fine. But outside of the orchestra, as a soloist, the world really opens up, right? Before we get to that part, okay, I do have a question for you. You might know the answer. You know a lot about the Berlin Philharmonic, you know, as a fan and listener and all that what's their dress code i tried to figure out the pattern of when they wear like a bow tie versus long tie do you know what their deal is i could be wrong but i you know in fact i very probably am wrong but their sort of major evening weekend concerts like their subscription series concerts they wear white tie okay and then for matinees they do like sunday matinees i think they wear long ties for that for outdoor concerts at, the, at their Waldbühne, they wear long ties. And I think also for concerts outside of the Philharmonie, when they're on tour, I've seen them wear long ties often. But I think it also depends on the conductor, maybe. Okay. Because I could be hmm. wrong, but like they wore long ties a lot under Abado. Oh, interesting. And they they Abado, wore, Abado, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's just uh, the, the communist in Abado. Hmm. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> and we love him more for it. We do. We do indeed. <laughs> You know, I mean, Abado nice. was really, you know, he was, you know, even in the 90s, he was, he was radical. He was, uh, yeah. he was conducting in, in a gray suit. You know, th- <laughs> this was Obama's tan suit debacle, you know, <laughs> way, way early on. Yeah. This was a factory workers concert, actually. You know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I think you would appreciate this. I do secretly love wearing a tux. Let's cue the music. Because as a male, you can't wear a tux without thinking of him. <laughs> I always order a martini for the same reason if I'm in a tux. I mean, there's only one drink you're allowed to drink as far as I'm concerned, you know, and reenact the scene from Dr. No. I show up at a card room. <laughs> but yeah, no, there's like the, yeah, the James Bond. I mean, it's our chance to, you know, be something different than your everyday self. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I mean, feel kind of like a badass. Yeah. <laughs> there's no denying that. Now I want to talk about um, soloists. Hmm. Solace who you admire their wardrobe choices and ones who you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I okay. think I'm, I'm going to stick to talking about men here because if I talk about women, uh, I'm certainly going get, to get in a lot of trouble. But um, It's that kind of show, man. That kind of episode. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I, I've said a couple of questionable things already, so why not? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, okay. I am all in on Joshua Bell's wardrobe, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love it. Um <laughs> I think he, he nails it. He's never all that slobby, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, or sorry, he's, he's never slobby at all. Even when he wears a t-shirt, it's, it's always like a black t-shirt and it's well-fitted. It's not like one of those baggy t-shirts. Yeah, you it's know. a quality t-shirt, man. Yeah. I mean, with that kind of money, he better get a, he better get a <laughs> fucking good t-shirt. <laughs> uh, have you watched that documentary with him where he's in his condo in New York? And it was designed to be shaped like a violin. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's on YouTube. Yeah, and... I don't know. I think he got. He, I think he got duped. Like I, I don't buy it. It doesn't look like a violin at all. Yeah, yeah. But it's like, oh yeah, this is like the neck, and this. Is, <laughs> it's like, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's like looking at the blueprint, it. and it looks like, it looks like a violin. But he's looking around, and it's just a square apartment. <laughs> like, nah, it's, just, <laughs> it's just a corner unit condo, really. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I, I got to check that out. No, but I, I think I think you know more than that. He's created a a brand for himself, which is. A very interesting thing yes. to do as a classical soloist. He wears a t-shirt sometimes, but he'll often just wear like a, a dress shirt, untucked, often, an untucked right? dress like shirt, untucked. and yeah. So, sometimes I mean, it gets he'll hot roll. on those stages in, in yeah. those lights. You it know, does. It gets warm, as yeah. we all know. Yeah, and it's he hot. moves. He moves a lot, so he's yeah. working it out there. But uh, <laughs> I, I think I think his his wardrobe is great. I think uh, I think he always okay, looks yeah. he always looks professional to me. Um, he's like the perfect example of someone who looks to me professional and nondescript, which I think is my ideal. Personally, I want to look formal. So maybe I won't go like the black t-shirt route, but I'm totally on board with his untucked dress shirt look. I personally don't want to like draw attention to my wardrobe. And I I don't think Joshua Bell does that. I think he only does that from people who are obsessed with like, oh my God, is the soloist is not wearing tails. (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like a regular person would just be like, oh yeah, he's dressed up, perfect, right? That's okay. it. Yeah, right. And I, so I think he, he nails it. 
Someone who's a little bit more eccentric is the cellist Misha Maisky. Do you know him? Oh, yeah, I do. He's phenomenal. I mean, he's a wonderful cellist. What does he wear? I'm trying to think. He's a real eccentric, though. So he has, okay. he has like crazy hair. He has a goatee. Yeah. The, and he wears all he's kinds. He's got the long, like curly gray hair, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Right guy? Yeah. We'll put pictures of him in the show notes. But he wears all Brian kinds. Brian May. Of, yeah, basically. <laughs> he's basically Brian May from Queen. Yeah, yeah he's, he's Brian May if he, you know, drank like a bottle of vodka a day for the last <laughs> th- six years. So. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know like Brian May just got his PhD in, in physics? I think. Oh come was. on, really? Now he's just yeah, so now he, he's just showing off. <laughs> yeah, so he he was always a physicist. Uh, I think like on this like he studied physics in college and majored in physics and something. And he always wanted. Wait, we're talking about like, the the Queen guitarist, right? The guy who plays the greatest guitar solo of all time. He's like a physics guy? Yeah, yeah. That's just, that's not fair, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He published something big recently. I think, I think yeah, I want to say he got his, he like officially finally got like his PhD or something. And then he published some big physics paper too. Good for him. That's awesome. I'm um, just jealous. But, yeah. but Misha Maisky, yeah, he's badass. a real, um, he's a real eccentric. And he's someone who also like has built a sort of brand around his look, right? He has a crazy hair. He has all this jewelry yeah. that he wears. He, wear, he has like a, like a necklace or whatever, a chain. He has like sort of things on his arms, bracelets, rings, mm, um, mm. and he always wears like loose shirts that are kind of you know they're either brightly colored, they have like interesting sort of puffery around the sleeves. They're not anything that you would wear in like a normal dress shirt. They, he actually is in costume, right? <laughs> 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 what he's wearing looks a dope and b very comfortable. So you know, uh, it's it's always loose. <laughs> so you know, more, more power to him, and he's sort of created that look for himself, and it works with his personality too, right? It'd be one thing if he played like a square, but he looked like that. But he he plays the way he looks. It's love very it. crazy. So I really love his look. But I'm really reluctant to give up this idea that we should dress up for concerts. I think that's kind of a, a hip thing to say, you know. There's something to be said for preserving what is special about this yeah. concert hall, right? It, it's kind of like, you know, one of the things that's been really bothering me it, for a while now is, is that you'll go out to dinner and it's just, you know, people on their phones all the time, yeah. right? Uh, at any, you know, spare moment in the conversation, or sometimes not even, like people will be having conversations and they'll be scroll, <laughs> scrolling on their phones. Or, you know, yeah. their, their dinner partner will get up to use the restroom or something and the first thing they do is they pull out their phone and they scroll. Mm. And I think it's a shame. It, it's, you know, we, we should have sort of these spaces that are, I, I don't want to say sacred, but that we sort of respect the dinner table, right? If, if you're here out with friends or, uh, you know, a partner or family or whatever, like, you know, you are... You know, it doesn't have to be, like, the most formal thing in the world, but you, you're dressed up, right? Like, you look nice, and uh, you don't yeah. pull out your phone, and you try to be a charming and engaging guest. Maybe you have a couple of stories ready, a couple of jokes to pull out, you know? It's the same with the yeah. concert, right? Yeah. I see phones at the concert, too. Like, I'll look at an audience, and it's five minutes before we play, and no one's doing anything but being on their phone. Yeah. It used to be yeah. that people were rustling their programs, and I found that annoying, but now <laughs> they don't even do that. Like, who needs, who needs a program now that we have Twitter? You know, I've seen people uh, on their phones during the concert. I've seen people pull out their phone and record things while we're playing and in between pieces. Just It's just all the time. And I think we should try to preserve some of the, the specialness of it, right? Like you, you paid mm-hmm. money for these tickets. You're out. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you're out with a, you know, with a date or with your family or you know, yeah. a, a loved yeah. one. And just look nice. Be charming. Be yeah. present. I think what you're trying to say is like at least try to be an interesting human <laughs> for like a few hours. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like a, an interesting human in the real world, right? Yeah. I get it. You can have like 30,000 Twitter followers and $2 million in Bitcoin and be wearing grease-stained T-shirts and sweats and mm-hmm. be at a concert. Fine. Yeah. But you're here. Try to be interesting. Try to be charming and look nice. Please. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> please, please. I would say you owe it to yourself. Yeah. Treat yourself and dress up.
Streeter, you have an idea. <laughs> yeah, I've been known to have some of those every now and then. Not many. They're sometimes even good. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't go that far. I tweeted out an article. It's on a Substack by this guy. I'm definitely going to butcher his name. But his name is um, Ted Joia or something. I think it might be Brazilian or Portuguese. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's called The Honest Broker. That's the name of the Substack. He's a music journalist. He used to be a jazz pianist, I, I think. And, oh, and, uh, he, dope, okay. Yeah, he used to be like a jazz pianist. And I think he suffered some kind of injury. And he has since turned into a sort of music writer and journalist. And a couple of weeks ago, he wrote a piece. Uh, it's called A New Model for a Music Conservatory. And I tweeted it out, and I thought it would be interesting to, to talk about it. Let me lay out awesome. the, the groundwork. Please. So cool. the facts of the case, as I understand them, there's a, a classical music record label called Pentatone, and it, it was an indie label. You're, you're smirking. <laughs> Are you pentagram. giving a thumbs down on the name there? <laughs> I heard pentagram. So <laughs> For the record, one of my favorite... I guess you could call an you could call it an indie label, but Frank Sinatra, who kind of wanted to say "f you" to the music recording industry, he started his own record label like midway through his career. It was called Reprise Records. Ooh, that's a good name. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. They had a cool yeah. logo too, and some of like Sinatra's iconic records in the latter part of his career and his recordings were with Reprise Records. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, it's a better name than Pentatone, I'll, I'll, I'll say that. So Pentatone, it's a, it's a classical music record label, and it's indie, but it's kind of well-known. Um, I think it's been nominated. No, no, it, it won some Grammy Awards. So it, it's like in the know, but it's not one of the big ones, right? Like EMI or, or Warner, Deutsche Gramophone, you know. It's been struggling financially, as all record labels are, especially indie ones. And it has been bought, right? Ted writes in his Substack, that's nothing new. You know, bigger companies are always buying record sure. labels. That's, that's the sure, thing. Sure, sure. What is new is the buyer. And this time, it's the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. So here we my are. My hometown, my hometown conservatory. Your hometown ooh, conservatory. Ooh. <laughs> and, you know, whatever, whatever we think about this, and we'll talk about yeah. it, this is like a game-changing move, right? It's like it's unheard of for, for a conservatory to buy a, a record label. What this means is that the record label will still be operating independently. So it's not like, you know, the, the, the students, it's not like some undergrads will be recording. <laughs> There's no rules. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all, yeah. It's a, it's a giant free-for-all. <laughs> yeah, I did imagine that for a split second. I'm like, okay, I'm sure they have some protocols around this. That would be hilarious. It would be kind of funny as like an art project. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Start releasing uh, records by undergrads and seeing seeing how many people in the industry actually catch on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dude, I think that's our record label right there. Yeah, yeah. let's do it. Impolite yeah. to listen. Yeah, that, that truly <laughs> would be impolite to listen to those recordings. <laughs> oh boy. So yeah, no, okay. it's it's not it's not that like undergrads at the SF Conservatory will be recording on this you know big record label. They'll be operating independently, but. They work with a bunch of artists who are sort of big names in the classical music world, and they built a, a pipeline, basically, between the conservatory and these artists, right? And they've previously done a similar thing when they've um, acquired a, I think it's uh, Opus 3 artists. Which San is, Francisco Conservatory? Yeah. This is, oh, yeah. interesting. They, okay. they, they own that. And, What's and Opus 3? I don't. It's a major uh, talent agency. They okay. manage people like Yo-Yo Ma, I think like oh, okay. Bella Fleck, Emmanuel Axe. Um, I okay. think I think like Bar- the biggest names. Yeah, like that. I think like Baron Boy maybe. Yeah. Oh um, damn. Okay. They're they're they're, they're huge, yeah. and so they're setting up these sort of pipelines between the conservatory students, the infrastructure at the conservatory, and these huge artists that are that are managed by Opus Three and then record for Pentatone. This is a a, a groundbreaking move whether you like mm, it or not. Yeah. And, and this whole article that, that we'll put in the show notes is, is sort of saying, like, this is a, a new model for the conservatory of the future. Mm. And I, I've tweeted about it. I expressed my skepticism about it in general, but I'm curious what, what you think first. All right, Mr. Arkin, we allow you five minutes for a response. <laughs> okay. People probably know this by now, but we both went for undergrad at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Um, something that I think is interesting and foreign to me and maybe to you just because of our education is how things work at the San Francisco Conservatory, at least to my understanding. I have no affiliation with them, but, you know, I've been there a few times. <laughs> so they are like a lot more a modern place than where we went to school. The Jacob School of Music at Indiana is very, for better and for worse, I'm not saying it's good or bad, it's just the way it is. It's very old school. 
Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> it's very old school, very European style. Like we had no like digital media music program like at all, right? <laughs> or like composition. I mean, the composition program we did we had was wonderful, right? But it wasn't film composition or film scoring sort of stuff or anything yeah. modern like that, right? It was just really old school in so many ways. And I think you and I have talked about even the concert halls and recital halls have a very old school European flavor to them, even though they're in the middle of Southern Indiana, <laughs> right? So San Francisco Conservatory almost feels the opposite, right? Because so many people I meet who study there or work there, work in like the new media labs, they, work, they have degrees in electronic music and stuff and that sort of space, which again, I almost felt kind of stupid for thinking this way. Because I mean, you and I both respect and love a lot of that kind of music but i I forgot that that stuff could happen at a conservatory (laughs) yeah (laughs) right so in a way i do kind of respect that that they're continuing to try to look forward as opposed to perfect the past if i dare say that so i think that's commendable and it's interesting but i haven't thought about this hard enough to have a strong opinion i can kind of think about it for a sec though yeah i I could start sort of expressing some of my concerns about this because i'm not actually sure if my concerns are well founded or not so i can just say what i think and and you can tell me if i'm crazy first of all you're you're totally right that i I have not even been to the san francisco conservatory but Mm -hmm. i know that it's one of the modern ones right it's it's hip Mm -hmm. it's it's kind of like the berkeley college of music is another one uh p boston oh yeah Yeah. that's right yeah oh yeah sure yeah there's certain schools that that people know are more, like you said, forward-looking. And then there are certain schools, like the ones that we went to, um, <laughs> are very for- are backwards-looking. The, the one that I went to in Paris is even more so, right? Like, you know, we still had, you know, paper, paperwork, and, and fax. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my ID card was literally a piece of paper with, with my picture stapled to it. But my concerns with it, like I will say, like I think this is a brilliant business decision. They own state-of-the-art recording studios in, in San Francisco. Yeah. So in the article, they, I think he interviewed the director of the San Francisco Conservatory, and he said like they'll be able to put out recorders for like, uh, you know, pennies on the dollar compared to most studios. Oh, yeah. So b- business-wise, this is a this is a brilliant decision, right? That's kind of how it works across all fields. Like I think it makes sense to have like vertical integration in in anything, right? This is what Costco does yeah. so well, and Amazon and Trader Joe's. But I'm, I'm concerned yeah. about it artistically because to me it seems like it accelerates the biggest problems in classical music that I see. Hmm. There are a few, but like, so one of them is, is credentialism. And it used to be that your education was not so important, right? It was whether you could play or not. And uh, who you studied with and where and for how long didn't really matter. And schools were not the only, or maybe even the major funnel into the industry. Increasingly, that is so. Like, you really... Yeah have a hard time breaking into the industry if you don't go to certain schools and study with certain people. It's especially true in in the big scenes, right? Try breaking into New York City without going to Juilliard, Manhattan, or uh, Manus, or, you know, one of those. But do you think that's actually led to a decrease in the quality of playing? Because you could argue the playing's never been finer than it is now. Is that a result of this kind of systematization of how these scenes are built, like the New York one, for example? Yeah, I mean, my my hunch is that the playing is that the bottom has come higher, but the peak has not gotten any higher. And that the the variance is the same, if not worse. I think there are more people who sound really proficient, but they're sounding more and more the same. And part of that is the credentialism, but part of that is also, quite frankly, I think recordings. I think the fact Mm. that uh, certain recordings are just more available, and now people just learn by recordings, whereas 100 years ago, maybe they couldn't do that. They had to learn from the score and play yeah, play yeah. what's inside their own head. So I think there's a sort of uh, leveling out of, there's just more people playing to the middle, right? You have fewer people like, you know. A the, regression to the mean. Exactly. <laughs> there we go. Chris is getting smart on us here. Yeah. But, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> uh, he's, been, he's been hitting the books again. <laughs> oh, that Chris, he's hitting the books again. <laughs> It's true that it, it can both be true that the level of playing is on average higher and that the playing is just generally lackluster because there, there, yeah. aren't, there aren't as many. At least there are the same number of really out there brilliant people, right, who, who are like you hear them play and you immediately think like, oh, wow, like what, yeah. what are they doing? Like this is crazy. Right. Um, right. I just don't hear that so much anymore. So that's one thing. And another problem is a centralization around the institutions. In classical mm-hmm. music, we really become reliant on big record labels, big yeah. conservatories, 
and big orchestras right. and big names attached to everything. And I, I worry that there's just this funneling through of all of the talent into fewer and fewer ways to, to sort of get in, right? I just worry what that's going to do to artistic diversity. And I don't mean diversity mm. in a sort of token sense. I just mean like people doing interesting yeah. things, sounding crazy, sounding different, playing crazy music, writing crazy music. You know, let's extrapolate this into a world in which Juilliard sees what the San Francisco Conservatory is doing and now, <laughs> right, right. Now, now, now they buy their own talent agency and record label. And now like, this is what everyone's doing. So now it's like, okay, this is a school where you go if you want to work with, you know, blah, 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 teacher. It's already a problem, right? Like there's like certain yeah. schools that are funnels into certain orchestras and, and ways of playing. In the article, hmm. one of the things that the director said was he was playing off of the fact that, you know, the word conservatory has conservative in it. And he was saying, like, you know, we should <laughs> look to the future and not be conservative just because we're a conservatory doesn't mean that we should be uh, held up in the old ways of doing things. And I think what's interesting is that the director, he seems to think that where they should look forward is in something like business models and the tech, whereas I think where we should look forward is in the way that we play. This seems mm-hmm. to be something that's very progressive in the sort of modern business world. It's taking like a, a huge step forward for conservatories. But to me, it's like a step backwards in terms of artistry and how we can expect innovation in classical music, not in business models, but in, in the way that people play, right? I actually look at it from a bit of a different perspective. Maybe I'm naturally more of an optimist. But, <laughs> but, um... I think that's definitely the case. <laughs> So what about this, though? I mean, I guess a lot of this hinges on what the conservatory's plan is for this label. Does it need to remain profitable? Or is this kind of like, or I'm not sure if it ever was, does it have to become profitable? Or is this kind of now a new soapbox for interesting things to happen upon? Because I could see reality where now that this record label sits in the comfortable cushion of a big multi-million dollar conservatory, they could take chances. You know, experimental music that students are working on or um, experimental pieces that are composed or new interesting arrangements or just different things that would never see the light of day. I mean, especially from a student, right? <laughs> it, you know, with any of the big labels like Warner or something. But now with this conservatory-owned, run, and operated label, yeah, they could put out a new recording that could have a pretty wide reach of like a piece you and I did on our on my recital it was right the masks hmm. for flute trumpet and phantom acoustics awesome cool modern piece that was so fun to perform rehearse all that and I mean a really fascinating piece of music but I think there's only one recording of it right and there yeah. probably and it was recorded decades ago right it you know as an alternative to like YouTube right because YouTube is like it's like what we have right now we're what I just said can kind of happen, right? Where new experimental things can actually reach sort of an audience. But of course it's beholden to the show that YouTube is. <laughs> and, you know, it's a you know a medium that has its own inherent flaws and stuff just being on the internet, right? As opposed to being a recording. So I see the advantage of that. I think that's yeah. a good point. And I think that's definitely a positive thing. The thing that worries me about it is that if you want to do that, more and more it seems like the only way to do it is through the conservatories or through institutions that are already existing, right? It seems to me harder and harder to break in into the mainstream classical world on your own. Like you, you need you yeah. need some sort of institutional backing and that, that worries me because I think institutions are inherently conservative. Yeah, yeah. I think they yeah. And they and that's not that's be, not bad, right? yeah. yeah. But yeah. I just worry about the institutionalization of music in that way. The promise of the internet seemed to be a decentralization of the artistic world. And I think that still is the case and that has held true for many fields, right? The visual art world, for example, is seems to have, have completely broken out of the institutions. To the point that what the institutions are doing with visual art, it seems like the majority of people actually don't care. And I would and also add the publishing world, ever since Amazon introduced self-publishing, that's how Fifty Shades of Grey came about. That was self-published, right? Yeah. Or was it that, or was it Twilight? I think it was it could Fifty have been Shades. Both, actually. Could <laughs> have been both. Yeah. yeah, that seemed to be the, the promise of the internet, and I think that's largely good. I think it's Samuel Lipman who says this, who's a pianist and a musicologist and, and critic of the 20th century. He has a book called The House of Music, which is a book of various essays on music in the age of institutions. And he has a wonderful line in there where he says something like, the triumph of artistic institutions in the 20th century is not a triumph of art, but a triumph of institutions. That encapsulates a lot, where 
you know, we, we have made art profitable and institutionalized and sort of and regulated and, and uh, regular in a way that mm. was oh, unthinkable yeah. a couple hundred years ago, right? You know, we, yeah. can, we can now churn out orchestral musicians of a quality that's crazy at, at places like Indiana University and, and uh, Rice and, in Houston and, and places like that. But that does more for, for business and institutions than it does for artistry per se. We should be careful not to conflate those two things. At the end of the day, I'm not sure that I really look at the classical music scene and I think, I don't really think that there's a lot of innovation happening in, in the way that people are actually playing. And um, yeah. you could be right that, you know, maybe the way is to have places just vertically integrate the, the hell out of their, their institution so that they just control it from the ground up, right? To the point that they're yeah. just... The Amazon Conservatory of Music. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the <laughs> yeah. way, but to me, to me yeah. I'm just, I'm highly skeptical, but I'm, I'm inherently skeptical about music schools, right? Like, I, I don't really... <laughs> yeah. I don't really... That was uh, apparent my first two minutes of meeting you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that all of a sudden this music school that already has so much to pay for, right, that it charges its students up the wazoo, the idea that now it's going to start getting risky on an indie record label all of a sudden, that seems yeah. to me beyond optimistic. You could be right, and I hope you are, but... Do you know how much they paid for it? That could have not been disclosed. It could have not been disclosed because I didn't... like a public company really have yeah. to or Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't see anything about it. Are you calling corruption? No, no, no. I, I don't. The, the Godfather of, <laughs> yeah. of the, the music conservatory scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there um, has to be corruption in the classical music world. I mean, oh, for sure. Be. For sure. Let me try to articulate what I think you're saying. Okay. So in a nutshell, you're worried that the music school scene has become pretty monolithic, right? In the way they approach music, playing, performing, all that. And you're worried. And there is a bit of a feedback loop there, right? Because... You know, with social media and stuff, we all get to know each other. We follow other people our age that play our same instruments on Instagram and on Facebook and stuff and on YouTube, right? So we see the recitals they do. We see all that. And boy, oh, oh, they put that piece so great. I want to play it like that, right? So I do. I do play it like that. And someone sees my video, right? So everyone's performing the Prokofiev flute sonata the same way after this goes on for 10 years, right? Yep. As it's gone on for the past 10 years. <laughs> so... So now there's just a way you play this piece and any deviation from that is kind of considered wrong, right? And so that's just one like little example, but you're worried that now with this record label owned by a conservatory, that's going to even further accelerate. It'll be a further catalyst to this cycle that's already underway. And before you know it, classical music is going to be more boring than it already is and everything's just going to be the same perfect why, why am i even here we should just have you, <laughs> we should just have you do both sides of the thing. <laughs> um Trader, no are you still no. here <laughs> no come on come, dude no i didn't mean it get back on here come on <laughs> uh, that hit the nail on the head that's exactly what i what i feel and yeah, I think that's already a problem, and I think this is just going to make it make it faster. And to sort of put a different spin on it, one of the questions that I've been asking myself is, what is like a, what is the quality that like old school performers have that, oh, that's, that, mo- yeah. that modern people don't, right? Because I think that's worth thinking about. Because you know, I don't want to get mired in like, is old school better? Is new school better? That's not so interesting. But I'm interested in what is old school and what is new school. And I don't know if this is right, but one of the things that I was thinking about is that when I look at people like the cellist Pablo Casals or the violinist Eva Gitlis or the, the flute player Jean-Pierre Rampal, they seem to be playing for people. They're not playing for flute players. They're not playing for musicians. They're playing. They're not for, playing for likes. <laughs> they're not playing for likes. <laughs> and those likes are certainly yeah. not music students or music yeah. people, right? They're not industry people. They're playing for regular people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I talk to quote-unquote regular people, when I talk to civilians, um, (laughs) when I talk to people outside the industry, one one of the things that I find really fascinating is that they still reverberate to people like Jean-Pierre Rampal and Ivory Gitlis, like old school players. They still still reverberate to them in the way that they don't to newer guys and girls. And uh, I don't think it's a matter of simple, like I, I think, you know, I've made that point before to people and they just say, well, it's just because that's the people that they grew up with, or it's just, you know, they're the old people. And I don't think it's simply that. I think it's that they played in a way that was more direct, maybe, and more obvious. And I don't know Dude. what it is exactly, but they, they were playing for people. And you see this with, quite frankly, more successful art forms than, than classical music. Jazz, it used to be. Uh, maybe jazz now is going the classical route, where they're playing more and more for jazzers than they are for people. Mm. But pop music, you know, obviously, they play for people. Writers, they write 
for people who are reading who are not writers. Yeah. Architecture's kind of come full circle, where it used to, you know, in the 80s, architects were designing for themselves, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or for each right? other. And like, they're, they're trying yeah, to impress yeah. other architects, right? Right, right. But if you notice, the concert hall is not built in the 80s, but the concert hall is built in the past decade, like the Elf Philharmonie in... In Hamburg, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the one in Paris. I yeah. forget what it's called, but yeah. Uh, I forget yeah. too, but yeah. You notice there's a shift, right? Now it's yeah. for people. It's for you and me and the every folk. No, I think that's a great, that's a great analogy. And yeah. classical musicians, I, I, don't, I don't really see them playing for people anymore. I see them playing for, like you said, for each other, for likes from other musicians on Instagram who follow like Instagram musicians. And uh, a lot of the people who go to the concerts now are, are musicians or they're, they're sort of music lovers. It's all people like sort of in the industry or lovers of the industry. But there's something corrosive that happens from, from playing to people who are professionals or connoisseurs of, of, the, of the field and only to them, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, you, you, it's a self-feeding loop. It just breeds this sort of rampant conservatism. And, you know, you see certain people trying to trying to break out of it, and uh, it just doesn't go well. And I think it just leads to, to a musical scene that is tremendously boring. And, and this, it's not that it's bad. It's, there's, there's so many wonderful musicians right now. I don't want to right. be one of those people who are like, oh, you know, music sucks now. It's, that's not right, the case. Right. It's just, you know, you, don't, you see fewer and fewer people who, who approach music as a, with, with the, you know, what Leonard Bernstein called the, the sportive element, right? Like, let's just, let's just try it this way, see what happens. Yeah, it may it may work, it may not, but it's going to be interesting. I see less of it, and I don't see that this is like a step in the direction to creating more of it. I see it, like you said, it's a that it's just going to create a, a an accelerating feedback loop within the industry, and I don't think that's helpful for it. I think that's it's, it's toxic, and uh, it's going to accelerate all our financial woes. Yeah, and we're not going to fix our money problems by like <laughs> by creating vertical integration. We're going to fix our money problems by actually giving concerts that regular people love to go to. Yeah. Make music that people want to hear. It's as simple as that. (laughs) You know, we forget that, you know, the average person knows greatness, right? Or knows great stuff when they see it. Like, I think um, I sent you that one one ballet clip that one time of uh, Natalie Osipova. She's Mm. a wonderful ballerina, ballet dancer. I think she's now dancing in the Royal Ballet in London. She's amongst the best of this whole generation right now. She's incredible. And that clip I sent you was just a few minute segment from the ballet um, Giselle. And you know a fair amount of ballet, but you're not, you know, a hardcore ballet connoisseur, I would say. Yeah. You know, nor am I, actually. I go to the ballet. I love it, but, I, you know, I don't know as much as a, someone who's in that world would know. But I love what you said. You said, you know what? We all know greatness when we see it because we're constantly surrounded by mediocrity at best. <laughs> It's only tangentially related, but I, I think I remember listening to, or no, I remember reading an interview with the pianist Gary Grafman. I don't know if you know him. He's, he was yes, a wonder- I do know him. He was a wonderful pianist and a, a performer, I think, of the generation that grew up in the sort of 50s and 60s. I could be wrong. He suffered a, a really horrible injury, and I think now, since then, he, he, he basically just mainly teaches. And I remember reading some interview with him where he was asked, why his generation of pianists suffered injuries disproportionately? Because they did, right? There were there were several mm. people yeah, of that sure, generation yeah. who just had to give yeah. up playing. Some Ray Pry had to had to give yeah. up for a long time. Yeah, yeah, or for a while at least. Yeah, he. I think even Van Cliburn had to had to give it up. Oh, sure, okay. Yeah. Um, and there's some who who sort of gave it up for a time and came back, but you know it was really it seemed to have gotten worse for a generation, and it's mm-hmm. continuing now. Like pretty much, yeah. every, you know, every musician has or knows people who have dealt with pretty debilitating injuries. And uh, he was asked why, and I think he said something about the effect that recordings had on his generation. Because like now, now there are recordings, not just of other people, but of yourself. And now you're (laughs) constantly competing with those recordings when you're in your live performances. And it leads to a level of perfection that you can't aspire to. And maybe there was a generation that was just driven to practice like crazy because of that, practice more than they needed to. Or, or could have that their bodies could have handled, and I think there's something similar with uh, with the sort of baked-in conservatism that we're seeing now. You know, there was a there was a time when someone like uh, Jean-Pierre Rampal was was playing a Bach sonata. 
he didn't have 200 recordings of it at his fingertips yeah. uh, that he could access, you know, in 10 minutes if he wanted to. Uh, he, he necessarily had to play them in some way. It, it doesn't have to be like he has this ego where he's like, I'm going to play it my way. It's just he had to because he had, a, he had the score. Right, right. And maybe like a recording, maybe two. Maybe he heard like his teacher play it. But he had to sort of figure out some way to do it that was his own. And, and then now we have a million recordings. And right. students, it, it's really true. Students learn from recordings more than they do from the score. Yeah, you yeah. Know, it's it's astonishing how much how little people actually read the score. They they learn from their favorite recordings, even conductors. Mm-hmm. There's a, a book called The Art of uh, Conducting by um, Eric Lensdorf, who's a wonderful conductor and teacher, and he complains about this at length. Um, mm, if people so want to read that, I'll put I'll put the Amazon link in the show notes. But um, <laughs> you know, he's like every every time I go to a master class, I, I tell people that, you know that you can't listen to recordings because that, that's the biggest problem that he sees in conducting yeah. students. But yeah, and I think that's part of it. And going back to the the whole point of this, I, I worry that um, we start seeing conservatories buying talent agencies with huge artists, <laughs> who are then recording for record labels, uh, and then you know there's this whole sort of it's it's too incestuous, right? It's too too yeah. much. I, I see no opportunity for radicals outside the scene breaking in, in a, in a world in which this is commonplace. Obviously, when it's if it's just the San Francisco Conservatory, Opus Three, and Pentatone. That's like a, an anomaly. But again, the, the thing that I'm worrying about is that, you know, Juilliard yeah. is going to look at them and be like, ah, ah. you know, and I'll, then you we'll know, buy Yamaha while we're at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now now the Juilliard is doing it. Now Curtis yeah. has to do it. You know, now Colburn has right, to do it. And now right. it's just like the thing that you're going to do if you're, you know, one of the major right. conservatories. Uh, and I mean, now now students don't even want to go if, you know, oh, pff, Colburn. Yeah, they have great teachers there. Jim Walker teachers there, but like they don't even have a talent agency attached. Why am I even going <laughs> yeah, right, there? Right, right. It's like, okay, come on. Like, are, are we really going to do this? <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. No. It's like, yeah. What we're basically saying is, to whoever's listening, works in management at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. You're at a fork in the forest. There are two paths you can go down. <laughs> you know, there's my version, and then there's Schrader's version. <laughs> the choice is yours. <laughs> What would be the craziest thing for a music conservatory to buy? I joked Yamaha, but like, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, so like, like, so like in the Steinway, industry, though, right? Or in the in the world, I think I don't know. Like, yeah, sure, an airline or okay, no, say in in the industry. I, I think it would be something to to see if conservatory if a conservatory could buy a music publication. You mean you don't have our alumni letter? No. <laughs> you know, we have great performers. We have great academic musicologists. Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. We don't have that many great music writers. Yeah. Like, we don't have that many great journalists, popularizers yeah. of music. Just general people who write in a way that laymen can understand, right? No. Um, all, you know, all of them are easily followable on Twitter. You know, it'll take you a minute to find them. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's, there isn't that many. Yeah, yeah. But um, the ones, that, I mean, there are some great ones, right? There's just not a ton. Yeah. So we have places like Gramophone Magazine, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, piece of shit. The, uh, I mean, you, you, can, you, can, you, can out, you can wipe your ass with it. Um, it, it, has, it produces nothing of value, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it, it does neither academic writing nor anything of, of real value in the, in the popular scene. It, it basically just writes lukewarm reviews of lukewarm records and uh, does, does, a, does a puff piece here and there and like an interview in which no one is asked anything interesting except for some sort of boring corporate questions. But That's a record label right there, man. <laughs> Lukewarm records. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's not bad, actually. I kind of, I kind of, I kind of dig it. Um, I can see a good logo in that. Yeah. In that yeah. Undersell, over deliver, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you know, I understand why Gramophone is like that. They can't do anything yeah. within the industry that's interesting uh, because yeah. they're they're uh, sandbagged by having to make a profit. So I'm, I'm trying to think of like you know if the if the if a conservatory could buy a magazine and let its students, its more sort of uh, literary students, uh, run loose and say, like, look, you can just write whatever crazy thing you want about music. It doesn't even have to be about music. But it, it, yep. the, the rule is, one, it can't be academic. And, and two, <laughs> it can't look like anything that you see in a music magazine, right? It has to be yeah. crazy essays, whatever. But, yeah, uh, yeah. but you don't need to make a buck. This doesn't need to be sellable. <laughs> it could be satire, if anything, right? It could be satire, yeah. We need that. Yeah. And it wouldn't be hard to subsidize, you know. The problem that I see that's inherent with things like conservatories buying record labels and talent agencies is that these things cost a lot of money to upkeep. Mm-hmm. So the world in which people are like, oh, well, now that we've bought them, we can do crazy things. 
that yeah, I'm like, right. I'm not so sure because at the end of the day, everything kind of does need to make a profit. And uh, <laughs> if, if they're not paying for it, their students are. And that's unethical in right. a whole different way. So... <laughs> The San Francisco Conservatory of Music is going public this month. <laughs> like, they're IPOing this stuff. Oh, shit. Yeah. Man, that's, that's, a, that's a real step forward. But, they are IPOing. Um, <laughs> the first publicly listed <laughs> music yeah. conservatory. <laughs> the cradle of innovation here, Streeter, in San Francisco. Yeah. The Silicon yeah. Valley, man. There's. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if we had to put money on, on the first conservatory going public, it would have to be the San Francisco Conservatory, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah after all, all these, like, all these rounds of venture funding. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, like yeah. like a, a record label and a talent agency, they cost a lot of money. A, a magazine, yeah, yeah. especially, you know, if we're, if we're going to make it a digital magazine with a very small print circulation, chunk Nowadays. change. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could subsidize that with one student's tuition <laughs> based on the San Francisco uh, Conservatory's tuition prices. So. <laughs> no, no. Dude, that's a good point. I mean, that's a yeah, that's a rounding error on a P and L statement, right? Yeah. Yeah. What about you? You got you got any ideas you want to throw out to the to the director if he's listening? <laughs> um, actually, you, you joked about it, but I think an airline would actually be pretty dope. Yeah. <laughs> now think about it. So now there's a conservatory. They got talent. Oh God, they yeah. got recording, and now they got an airline to fly their talent between all. This. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, no, I, I was joking, but yeah, like Yamaha or like a. I wouldn't be surprised if, if like Steinway and Juilliard unite under like some parent company, some like shell company. <laughs> I mean, you this laugh, but you, you can see man. it, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you thought we saw consolidation in, in in this industry, man. Just wait, like, oh man, the future is a mysterious place. We'll see what happens. I hope you're right. I hope it works. I'm a believer, shooter. I'm a believer. <laughs> I am not. I'm a believer. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dude, what if they sign Justin Bieber? <laughs> Dude, uh, you know, at this point, I truly would not be surprised. In this mm. piece, the, the director of the San Francisco Conservatory did say, you know, he basically said, uh, sit tight, there are two more big announcements coming <laughs> by the end of the year. So, I mean, fuck it, right? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> now we're going to have the believer wing of the, of the conservatory. <laughs> Uh, oh boy! Justin Bieber oh is a new is a new professor of music. Uh, he, he's been signed by Opus Three. He's singing for Pentatone. We're all in, baby. It, t- it took oh, a while, but when vertical integration hits classical music, boy, does it hit hard. I left my heart in San Francisco. High on a hill It calls to me To be where little cable cars Climb halfway to the stars The morning fog 